Hey, fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. Today, I'm joined by Gil Gross. He has a really interesting channel that you have to check out where he does Monday match analysis. He talks about all that's happening on the ATP tour. And if you're into the latest and the greatest news and stories behind the scenes, you should check it out. I do. And we're going to talk about tennis, all kinds of tennis, how we got into the kind of sports broadcasting genre as well. So welcome to the podcast, Jill. Great to be on with you, Jonas. Uh, I've been a longtime subscriber, a longtime viewer of this channel. Uh, right, and, you nice. know, still such a, a valuable niche. And I think, you know, although we we approach the sport in in ways that are a little bit different, I think we're we're connected in the sense, you know, we care about uh, giving information that goes deeper and goes beyond and kind of serves the the real tennis nerd, which is the name of your channel. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I think there's also there's a lot of facets of nerd. Like it could be guys who play tennis themselves and they don't care what's happening on the tour. It could be guys that only watch the tour and don't really play. And it could be the gear nerds that love everything about gear. But usually if you love gear, you like the other stuff as well. So yeah. it's really there's a lot of tennis nerds out there. And, and it's uh, nice to have like all kind of media channels catering towards them. Like me, you studied the journalism in a form, public communications. And how, how did you get into, like, what's your tennis background? Like, you're, you look like a pretty good player from what I've seen on, on videos. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my tennis background is that, you know, it, it became my number one focus and my number one sport uh, from, a, from a pretty young age, probably like 11, 12 years old. I also played baseball. But, um, you know, the story is I, I actually trained a lot and I trained at good academies with, with great players. Uh, I never competed all that much. So I trained, 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 didn't play that many tournaments. Um, and I ended up just kind of loving the sport, but also knowing that as far as college and as far as my career, uh, I wasn't going to actually be relying on tennis to, again, get a scholarship or make money. So, you know, there was a level of seriousness that that other people have towards it that that I don't have, even though. Uh, again, I was playing a lot and, you know, getting good coaching and, um, you know, I, I really knew that I wanted to be in sports, uh, from a, from a very young age. And I knew that I wanted to be a broadcaster from a very young age. I, I didn't necessarily know that it was going to be in tennis, to be honest with you. And we can get kind of into that. Uh, but those are the two things that, that I was really kind of steadfast on. Uh, I wanted to go to a big school. I went to Syracuse, which is, a a school that. If you turn on on the television, especially in the U.S. and watch sports, there's a good chance the sportscaster went to Syracuse, a uh, better chance than any other school, at least. Right. So it's the school that that would give me the best chance to do that. I played on the club team there and uh, I try to play as much as I can uh, now continuously. So, you know, uh, good player. There's there. It's always relative. And, you know, I, I try my best. That's great. That's great. No, it's, it's important to go. And I think, I mean, it's a blessing in a way that you had like such a clear vision of your life, like so early on, like that you said, okay, I want to be in broadcasting. I want to be a sports commentator because that's, it makes it easier to pave out your life. I think, I think the worst is when you're like kind of lost and you're getting older and you're not feeling like you're finding your home, you know, uh, but still making it happen is, is still a challenge because it's not like there's an abundance of sports broadcasting jobs. Now with YouTube, you, you can build your audience, but but, uh, you know, when, when I started in journalism, you really had to go for like, you know, I want to work at CNN, I want to work at this, you know, I, I did political journalism 
for a while there. And, and it's, uh, there were not like as, you know, an abundance of jobs. You needed to go for something very specific. Like, so, uh, but what, what, what has your, what has your YouTube journey been? Like you, that felt natural to you straight away, or you felt like that was, uh, uh, tough to get into or, or felt a bit weird considering that you also do like tennis channel stuff and you also do more traditional broadcasting. Well, it, it was a bit of a coincidence. It started when I was in high school and, uh, it, I would never have made a YouTube channel, I don't think, it, if uh, the radio station I was interning at did not shut down, completely closed down. Because there was a, a sports show. It was every afternoon. It was, I think, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. local time on, on, um, on the East Coast in New York where I grew up uh, that I started doing sports updates for. Then they ended up putting me on the air. And I'm like in high school and it was really, really cool for me. And I loved it. And it was a rush that was like amazing. Uh, and then, you know, the station wasn't making any money. It completely closed. And I was left basically without that outlet to talk about sports into a microphone. So it, it was literally a matter of I lost this. How can I replace it? And the only way there's not a radio, another radio station in the country who's going to put me on air, uh, a high school kid. So. Uh, I'm like, okay, we'll we'll do it ourselves and made a YouTube channel, kind of built a studio uh, with with my father, which was a really fun experience, even just to build the studio. And uh, I started off talking about about all sports. Um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to be early on and I've had a lot of evolutions here. But, you know, I looked up to a Colin Coward or a Stephen A. Smith or a Nick Wright, you know, these people who talk about a lot of different sports and formulate opinions on it and make arguments and they're very well informed about different sports. That's how it started. I ended up learning that the tennis videos where I brought more of a technical knowledge to it, uh, that gave me kind of something that other people didn't have. Uh, they were doing better numbers. And once I ended up going to college, I have a lot of things to do. There's a lot of microphones to speak into. And it's now about not, I don't have anything to do. How do I kind of fill this void? But how do I keep this going with everything else going on in my life? So I made a system. I decided, forget all the other sports. You know, uh, they were going to throw all of them to the side. This is just a tennis YouTube channel. And I honed in on tennis and I made a, a system where, I could do it consistently, which is, you know, every Sunday, I know I'm going to have time to watch the men's final. And I am going to dig so deep into the nuances of the men's final every week and post on Monday. And that was the idea. And I've been doing it for about five years now. Yeah, it's great to have a system. I think that's a very smart thing, because also, I think with YouTube and with everything in life, like you need to specialize at some point because you can't, I mean, you want to cover everything. I mean, it's your natural instinct if you love sport in general, like you, you're probably watching basketball, American football, whatever. And and same with me. I, I love all aspects of tennis, but at some point you have to like find a niche or find like a voice where you feel more confident or or it's easier for you to kind of get a point across. And I think the sooner you can do that, it's a little bit easier then to to kind of find your niche and find your place in, in media. Yeah, and as a consumer, I've really actually gone away from those uh ever not 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 evergreen but those all-encompassing sports commentators and and now i find myself more and more especially because you know we've kind of shifted into a podcast world and a youtube world uh people who who have that specialty are always going to be better than the people trying to keep track of five different things at once 
Yeah, and sports happening all the time, right? That means like you look at the ATP tour. I'm sometimes amazed. You know, I've been traveling a bit this year. I go to some tournaments every year. And just traveling as like a media guy and being a bit behind the scenes and just hitting a few times on the practice courts or whatever, it feels like a lot of work or it feels like at least your your energy, you go over airport and you take the next one, you go to the next one. And then the players keep doing that for a whole year. For me, that's like quite shocking that it, it's it's quite energy consuming and it can also lead to like, okay, the delays and everything. So I'm very impressed by by even if you can keep up with tennis just as a media guy, but then keep up with tennis as a, as a pro is, is pretty amazing. There's, I don't know that there's a harder sport in the world to really consume all the information for. Because at the end of the day, and by the way, I don't think all tennis media really does a great job of this. Some do, some don't. But like, you have to watch the matches, right? Like, you actually have to watch them. And there's more tennis matches than there is anything else. There's no other sport that, you know, especially when it comes across time zones. And, you know, you can especially look at it when you're at a place like Tennis Channel that tries to cover it all. And and you end up looking at the schedule and you go, oh, my God, we're on air for 18 hours today because of the, the different time zones. It's like mind blowing. And, uh, yeah, that that adds to it. it. It really it's truly the most consuming sport in the world, I believe. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's it's uh, a sport where it's really tough to keep up. You have the WTA and the ATP. Like the women's part of the sport is very strong, like a strong product. So compared to mm -hmm. many other sports, uh, so if you're gonna keep up with both tours, then you're gonna keep checking challenger results and futures results because some people do. You know, they they go deep. You know, it's like five six hundred in the world, or this is a rising junior, or you can even go down to college tennis if you want. So, like, you only have a set amount of time, right? So you need to focus. Right. Like, how, how has your experience been around that? Like, what do you focus on? And you try to, right, have that system to make sure your time is protected. It's hard, you know. It's 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 hard and it's easy, right? It's only watching tennis. So it's 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 uh, needs to be put in perspective. But you, you really just – you do everything you can. I know that's not, like, a good answer. But I would say that there isn't much of a system – uh, there are, you know, honestly, there are a lot of work-life balance decisions uh, that go into it, and you kind of have to prioritize uh, what you think is is most important and what is going to be something that you're going to use on the show, and and what is something that you know where that that isn't the case. Um, uh, right now, it's the time zone thing mostly. Shanghai is probably the worst time zone in the world, and for me. Um, and I'm on, on the West coast of the U S now I'm no longer on the East coast and, uh, it's a lot of watching highlights, but then it's deciding, okay, well, look, this, this match was uh, a surprising result to me. Maybe I'm going to go watch the full match replay so that I can see what happens. Whereas maybe if the favorite who was supposed to want win just ended up winning, I probably don't end up watching the match. Cause I'm like, okay, what I thought I, what, what I thought would happen happened and I'll catch him in the next round or I'll catch him in the final. Uh, so things like that kind of happen throughout the year. But yeah, there's no system. Yeah, the time zones is an issue. And I think also the structure maybe of the ATP tour is something I, I've talked about it a lot, like maybe ad nauseum, but it's like something might need to change in tennis at some point to kind of maybe create a stronger product and make it also more fair for the players on the lower ranks to actually make some money. I mean, with, that's that's a pretty clear issue in tennis, whether how you solve it, it's another story, but... And, but yeah, just being able to, you know, get the time zone right now, they're over there. The whole season is very long. They have like one month off soon. So I guess we're getting to the 
to the end point where people can kind of charge batteries such as you and me and and like wait for the next year but um what's your most exciting part of the season for you like what's like where you are you know most excited to watch the tennis is it us open or uh, somewhere before that it is the us open but that's because i'm on site um yeah you know that that's really the reason i i work for us open radio and uh my my role for them is kind of being on the outside courts that which d- doesn't necessarily mean the small courts but essentially the main broadcast will be focused usually on ash and and my job is to kind of find the next most interesting thing somewhere else whether it be on armstrong or grandstand and 17 i end up roaming around quite a bit uh it's you know, and then they kind of go to me for updates on what's happening and for storytelling and sometimes for play by play. So uh, I'm always at the U.S. Open uh, in person the first 10 days. There's nothing like being on site. Uh, so that that's my that's my favorite experience every year. But uh, let's see. Favorite tournament watching from home um, is probably. Well, I mean, then it's probably Wimbledon. I mean, you know, I I don't I know it's not creative. Uh, I love the beauty of Monte Carlo. I love the beauty of Rome. I like the environments there. Um, I I really like the Golden Swing. Honestly, I I love the crowds. I think they're they're locked in. And I, I guess I'll I'll end on this blanket statement: the crowds make the biggest difference in the enjoyment of watching a tennis match. Uh, more so than the quality, more so than the star power. If the environment is good for me, that makes that makes all the difference. Um, and I, I was talking about this with Davis Cup and you know the new format. Uh, Davis Cup, I could I could watch two players who I had never heard of because they were both 300 in the world. And if they were playing in front of a a raucous environment, a raucous atmosphere in South America or something, I was interested. I still wanted to watch. And that's what Labor Cup, not Labor Cup, that's what Davis Cup has lost here. Yeah, I agree with the Davis Davis Cup. I was going to say, now we get all the mixes. No, but but (laughs) the Davis Cup, because it's like, and I think most people I talk to have the same opinion. Something got lost. I mean, I understand reasoning and and you know the travel schedule, blah blah blah. There there were reasons for the change, but maybe the wrong reasons or maybe not enough of reasons because now the product is so much weaker. And then you have like this, you know, you go to Malaga, you know, oh, it's good because I'm I'm driving distance to go watch the finals. But it's not the same when you have like eight teams coming in there. You want like a one match on a home pitch, like a let's call it a pitch or a home court where yeah. it is like, oh, we chose this really slow clay to piss off these guys and, and to kind of neutralize their big server or whatever. And it's just like, that was super entertainment because it became kind of like football or like soccer or whatever, where it's like, it's a proper team sport where there's a lot mm-hmm. of like tactics and planning and strategy. And it's a very important, as you said, as for the crowd, like the crowd is vital. Even if you're going to upset a, a very good tennis nation, you need the crowd. There was no other way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, Spain didn't qualify. So they're they're going to Malaga and no Spain. It's it's yes. it's, it's interesting. I'm curious to see what happens long term with the event because there there's been, you know, even more uh change in in ownership of of Davis Cup. So it'll be fascinating to follow. Yeah. It it's a it's a little bit of a of a letdown like the new structure because I think team tennis has a potential for yeah. for me like be, 
seeing it as a kind of a package where you want to have the crowd engagement. I think the players like to play for something bigger than maybe themselves. Tennis being a very individual sport and you being in your own bubble and you don't even have your coach that you could talk to. And we can get into that, whether that's a good thing or bad thing. But I think you need to package it in a way where it's like more engaging. And, and then the, the crowd, the team spirit, that, that's very important, I think, for tennis. It stands out a little bit, you know. Um, so what do you think in general about like any possible like rule changes that could improve the sport? Do you have any strong opinions about could we do something? Should we in, allow coaches to sit next to their player, for example, to have more interaction with the player and the coach? Or how can we make the product better? Yeah, well, uh, I'll start with the coaching aspect. I mean, that's been a massive change that hasn't really been treated like the massive change that it is. It hasn't been covered all that much. Uh, there has not been an announcement from the tours that the rule change is official, right? They said last year, last fall, after the U.S. Open, that they were going to trial it for the end of 2022. That is the last we've heard about this. Now, I mean, I... As soon as 2023 started, I asked some coaches, I said, hey, is this staying? And they they said, yeah, but there has not been any public discussion of this. So it almost feels like and this is kind of one of my issues with it. It almost feels like it was like sneakily done behind closed doors without kind of a, a true like feedback loop uh, that I think should have been created. Like, are, are the players for this? Are the coaches? I know the coaches are for this. It makes them more important. So, of course, they like it. Uh, are the fans for it? That That's one aspect to it. I am sort of accepting that it's here to stay uh, because that that looks to be what's, what's going to happen here. So I, I almost view it as a little bit of a waste to kind of continue to stagnate in the debate of should there be coaching or not now i prefer to kind of play it forward to how do we make the most of it because it's here and uh, there are a lot of things that i think tennis needs to do to to maximize this and make this a serious situation i will start uh, with just one example from the broadcast side of things there are a lot of instances in which the information of who is in the player's box or who is the player's coach in a given week. We know the main ones, right? We know their coaches. There are a lot of situations where we don't know who they are. Like, could you imagine in, in, in any other sport where the commentator can't find out who the coach is because there's no way to find that information and coaching is legal. Like when coaching wasn't legal, there was an excuse for that to be the case. And there's no longer an excuse because it's now part of the sport. Uh, I think uh, press conferences, that's another thing. The coaches should be made available after pretty much every match. If, if you know, if we're going to talk about making this into a mutually beneficial thing where, okay, there's coaching and now the fans are going to benefit as well, uh, they, should, they should be available to the media just like the players if they're going to be a part of it. Uh, the, the last part kind of about the actual product of, of watching the sport, that's one that I don't know that I've figured out yet. I mean, what do you think? In or how have you liked the the mic'd up boxes? The the tournaments kind of take the audio live sometimes. Sometimes it's in English. Sometimes it's in another language. Obviously, the viewership in terms of their fluency in other languages is all over the map. You don't really know what they're going to say. Um, I mean, have you enjoyed? Um, that aspect of the coaching where you've been able to hear what the boxes have been saying? 
I kind of like the idea of the interaction. I've been on the fence about this because like I'm a part tennis traditionalist, part love tennis. So I wanted to kind of sustain its heritage and its, its you know, good position in, in the world of sport and with the growth of other sports and the packaging, especially in the US of other sports. I mean, you're very good at making a sport an entertainment product, whether you know a lot about the sport or not. And I think mm -hmm. tennis needs to learn from that because tennis is still kind of stale. Like these are two guys that unless you're playing tennis yourself, you don't know them, you know, and then they don't put the name of the coach. You have no idea who the coach is. The coach in other sports is a, it's a key part of the team. I mean, that's the guy you, you give shit if something goes wrong or, you know, oh, why did he pick this player to play on the startup like that? What is he thinking? And that, that gives like fans something to talk about. It gives the sport a little bit of a, you know, three-dimensional feel. I think you can maybe go all the way in the same in an individual sport, but you can build it a little bit more like their relationship, talk about it. What is this coach trying to bring to her or his game? Uh, how are they, how is their dynamic? And if you can bring them both onto press conferences, you see the dynamic. So I think it becomes like relationships are so important in the entertainment. So if you have more of a relationships, even in an individual sport, it's more interesting. I mean, like, it's always fun to see like some aggro on a tennis court, in my opinion, like there's some drama, like Tsitsipas, Kyrgios, Wimbledon, right? A lot of drama, people love it, you know, but there's not enough mm -hmm. drama in tennis. It's just quite stale. So I, I would love to kind of invite more of I mean, at least not maybe drama, but like some kind of dynamic uh, feeling of the sport. There's something happening besides the ball being hit left, right, center, and forehand, backhand, you know. Right. And, and with coaches, right, what creates drama is characters. And if you add the coaches into the mix and you actually learn who they are, what they're about, and, and what, they feel, what they feel strongly about, uh, you create more characters, and, and that will play a role at least in, in creating some of the, the drama and the humanization that, that we're looking for. Uh, I guess Shelton at the U S open is, was kind of an example of that. You had a lot of, a lot of interaction between Ben and, and his father, Brian, where, where you kind of did get to know both of them. And, and then Brian in a, in a magazine interview ended up saying something that kind of re, uh, reignited the whole hang up the phone discourse and, and debate. I think in an ideal world that is happening in real time. Some of that at least is happening in real time because, you know, we, I guess are, are hearing from the coaches throughout tournaments and we're hearing from coaches more during the matches. I do think if something can be done, like I, I do wonder about live closed captioning because I know like the language thing is a big deal in terms of how do we make sure that coaching improves and helps the product? Like I know for, for English-speaking viewers who are watching on a tennis channel, for example, uh, a lot of that is, is the minute, right? Like Juan Carlos Ferrero doesn't stop talking. We know that. Most people who are watching don't know what he's saying. So that is something that I think could, could be unlocked where like I, w I don't know where the technology is right now for live closed captioning, and I don't, I also don't know what the legality of or the risks of using that on live TV is in terms of, of making a, a solution so that everybody can, I guess, get the benefits of the mic'd up on-court coaching. Uh, I wonder where the, the AI technology is for live translation and closed captioning. And I wonder if, you know, if it's trustworthy and legal to use that on, on TV. So that's kind of where my mind goes. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where it develops. I've seen a lot of different opinions on it. Um, 
Joel Drucker, actually, uh, he thinks that it should be Davis Cup style, where if you're going to legalize coaching, put them on the court and make them sit on, on the bench. Like, they should actually be on the court. Why are we... Why are we like shouting from the stands, right? Joel, Joel looks at that and thinks that's kind of ridiculous, uh, which you know, I think he kind of has a point. Yeah, I kind of like that. Like, I, I know that they try a lot of weird things in, uh, and, or maybe good things in some cases, but in the UTS, you know, Ultimate Tennis Showdown, you know, that they're trying like the scoring system, I find maybe a bit much uh, as with the these cards, but I do like like they're sitting next to their coach and obviously this is more of a humorous format because the players are relaxed. It's an exhibition, right? But it's interesting to see the dynamic if the coach sits next to them. And I've seen it like they they could like invite the coach on the WTA tour. I guess was it last year? They did like a trial year. I don't know what's happening with that or maybe they're doing it still. But um, And that w led to some interesting conversations. Also some weird ones where you're like, this guy is berating her for playing bad or it's just like was too much, you know? And but yeah. on the other hand, it creates good TV, like good, uh, good streaming, good stuff to watch. Yeah, and and by the way, it's a it's an extra challenge. But this stuff doesn't need to be taken live. Uh, if you have the resources, and I mean, this is TV mumbo jumbo. But like, if you have replay operators who are able to monitor the the feed, and this is probably the best way to do it. Uh, they can just listen to it, and then if something is interesting, if something is compelling, you go back and you play it so that you, you, you aren't taking it live. Because when you take it live, another thing you get, you get a lot of like the, all right, all right, good job, stick with it. And it's like, okay, thank you. That did not need to be on the air. That's true. It's a very good point, actually, because when I've been going to the ATP tournaments, I usually like linger around the players' boxes or sit down next to them, and uh, you get a lot of like, forza, 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 Ale, 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 you know, it's like, vamos, vamos, vamos. It's, it's pretty much just like encouragement, like a mantra, yeah. you know, come on, come on. Like, don't, don't uh, be lazy with your footwork. Uh, and uh, or, so it's, it's, it's a lot of that. So you, that doesn't add any value. But if you have like maybe the chance to take a timeout or like after the first set is finished, you have a coaching break, you find a format where you can try it and say, okay, they have like a one minute coaching timeout. And then you can actually create like a transcript. If it's in another language, you can at least have an expert there who can then give like either AI or a proper person just give like, okay, so they talked about that he needs to be more aggressive for the second set. He needs to attack the net a lot more. He and, and uh, stop fluffing the second serve on, on the opponent's forehand, you know? So there could be some good outtakes because I think sometimes tennis misses like giving the match a story arc. And I think it's great that you as a tennis player uh, who, who understands tennis can, can talk about it more like in a story because I think when you have uh, commentators who are maybe not so used to playing or, or maybe uh, not that into tennis, it's tough for them to break down like the story of the match. Like, why is this happening? Why is he now like choking this? So what's, what's you know, the storyline? Right. I think that sometimes is missed also in highlights. Like highlights are just like beautiful shots. But I would prefer highlights if there was like a narrator who said, you know, they started one, one on one was a key game because he got broken there. He had some really, you know, sloppy errors. And that kind of led the whole, painted the whole picture of the first set because he could never break him back because he has too much of a, of a first serve. So then you get like what happened in the match in, in bite sized chunks that are vital to the match story, kind of. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, give me. Give me big points. If, if you show me highlights, just show me the big moments. I mean, I, I'll take the good points and the great shots, but if, if someone, you know, hit a great first serve 
and had a forehand in the middle of the court and put it in the net on on at 30 all and then they got broken give me the forehand on forced error at 30 all like i want to see that but that that's never in highlights and uh that's why you have to watch the matches uh i i also like to acknowledge like the format of live tennis commentary it it tv is short right like at the end of a match and unless you think deeply about tv which i feel like with your background you definitely have and you know this um or if you've done it a match ends in like you have like 30 seconds you have 30 seconds to summarize what your thoughts are to synthesize your takeaways and your feelings on the match and then you think about it, okay, there's two players here. Well, maybe you have 20 seconds for one and 10 seconds for the other. That's it. Like, TV is quick. That's why, you know, I get 30 minutes. So they get 30 seconds. I get 30 minutes. So even if they are are just as insightful as me, just as, as uh, they're making observations that are great and smart, I can still do more because I have the format that's going to give me an advantage in, in breaking down the match. Yeah, I agree. I think the TV format, like in general, we've seen that with, with TV shows like talk show era, whatever, like this, this five-minute interviews packed with commercial breaks, and, and it all feels very forced and very, you know, um, formulaic. Like it's just like, oh, they've already went through these questions. There's no natural live feel to the interview because everything feels like it's scripted, right? Uh, that's right. kind of talk show how it is and that you can also see you know and I understand like the TV format is tough to work with because it's like kind of old-fashioned and you have these like okay we have to go to commercial break now you have 30 seconds to and it's I mean nobody can do a really good job of like trying to break down two players reaction to the match setting and, and everything like in, in 30 seconds it's tough like so you have to give them props to people that do it well it's, it's not easy at all absolutely yeah uh, it's the, the timing of it and being concise with your words and having, you know, having things to say, uh, because also like that's, that's another thing, right? Some people, there are even people who played at the highest level who I think they watch the game, but they, they sometimes are, are lacking like strong thoughts on what they're seeing. Uh, meaning maybe they're just not the most opinionated people or uh, maybe they don't want to hurt feelings even. And that, that's, that's another aspect of it. So, yeah, there's, there's so many different things that create different analysis styles, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Like it, I mean, I, I can completely understand if you played at a high level, you're now an expert commentator. Uh, you know the players maybe because you maybe were a coach or something before. And you don't want to kind of ripping people left, right. You know, you hurt your connections and it feels a bit weird. You don't want to be that kind of person. Uh, and then there's yeah. some people who are more blunt. That's more natural to their personality. They can be more like, okay, you know, this guy's not performing. Something is in his head, blah, blah, blah. They're more straight to the point. But it's, it's the where the personality kind of shines. And usually I would guess that people prefer to have someone who's kind of opinionated because that's that's really what why you're watching. You want an opinion. Like you want someone to say something beyond like, he hit a volley in the net. We can all see this, but what, what really is, right. what are you thinking about this, you know? Yeah, the way I like to approach it is people watching tennis matches, they usually know a lot about tennis. Uh, it's, it's not, and, and it depends, right? Maybe if you're doing a match, uh, a Roland Garros match, that changes. Maybe you have some casual, more casual viewership, but I think for the most part, 
uh, the majority of people engaging in your tennis content, they, are, they know a lot. They're really, really smart. And, and that's, what, that's how I approach it. Everyone watching me really knows the game very well. The challenge is then going deep enough and de be detail-oriented enough to actually say something that's interesting to them because they already know a lot. Um, that's, that's my approach. I think there, it's not necessarily 100% the right approach, and there are you know, commentators who have been very, very successful and analysts uh, and, and even YouTubers who have been very, very successful uh, creating a, a more digestible product and keeping things a little bit simpler or less technical, um, being, you know, th there are different ways to do it, right? You can be funny. Uh, it, it's, there's, I guess there's room for, room for all different kinds of uh, approaches. Yeah, true. I mean, 100%. When you watch a match, like, do you sit there with your um, laptop or your notepad and you're like really trying to break down like what were key moments? Like every point is becoming like kind of a thing to look at. What's happening? General trend? How is this player reacting? Uh, you know, in the in the breaks and so on. Yeah, if it's a big match, I I have a note taking system on my laptop where every single point something is written down. Now it's not it's not always very detailed. But it, it, it works as a memory jogger, especially if it's like it's love 40 and sometimes you forget what happened in the first point of the game. Suddenly it's, oh, it's triple break point. And, but you didn't know that it was going to be triple break point on the first point, And therefore you didn't really understand the importance of the first point. So you go back, you have a note written down. It reminds you, oh, that's what happened. And, and that's why I think it is important, and it keeps you focused. And I think focus, just like if you're playing a match, it's important for me when I'm watching a match that I stay focused. My system of writing something down every point, that note-taking, is, is very important to keep me focused and to also jog my memory. And then kind of at the top of the document, I'll be writing down my, my larger picture thoughts. 95% um, of what I write... I'll never say or I'll never talk about because it's just like 15 all uh, serve uh, plus forehand inside out forced error sliced backhand defense, right? Like that, it'll, I'll write down something like that. 95% of those points I'll never talk about, I'll never go back to, uh, but just the act of writing something down every point, I think it keeps you engaged enough to try to recognize uh, the patterns of what's happening in a match. I think for tennis enjoyment to be 100% like real for me I need to watch the whole like really watch it you know I can't you know leisurely uh, have a beer with friends and watch a little bit like left eye you know I, I need to actually mm -hmm. be watching because otherwise I don't feel like I learn I, and I don't follow the story of the match I, I can just see points here and there oh you know and then you have the the scoreline kind of vaguely in the back of your head or you're seeing it on the screen but it's you don't see that maybe one key point that just changes everything and also, because in tennis, it's such a mental sport, so one bad point can just, like, influence your whole mood for the rest of the set, you know, and maybe match. So uh, these small, like, nuggets uh, are so important in tennis. Yeah, and, and a lot of the short points, I think, get lost if you're not keying in. Um, I think you can, you kind of focus in when they start to rally, but those kind of bang, bang, the service winners, the, the missed returns... 
Um, the, all, all those shorter points, which actually make up usually 50% of the points, if not more, the, the zero through, I'll even say, I know zero through four is the standard, but I feel like even zero through three uh, is probably the majority of most points in the matches. Those points can get lost, but they're so important, so I think you can't ignore those. Um, in terms of enjoying the match, uh, I almost think I sometimes put myself past a, a comfort zone in the enjoyment area where if I'm, if I know I'm not covering a match for YouTube and I can just relax a little bit and maybe take, you know, one or two takeaways, but not write something down every point, I probably enjoy that just a little bit more, but the, the process of, of kind of going full focus mode, full locked in, uh, that, you know, the payoff is worth it because at the end, when I, have something that I feel really good about where I feel like, okay, I've understood this. I've done a great job of understanding this match and I have a lot of things to talk about that I just feel confident in. Like, I feel like they're good points. Uh, I feel like they're compelling. I feel like they are important to, to what happened in the outcome of the match. That's a great feeling. I, I like kind of live for that feeling, especially after a big match where it doesn't always happen. Sometimes after a match, I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel like this was an important aspect of the match, but maybe it's not a slam dunk. I'm still, it's all I have, so I'm going to talk about it, but I, sometimes there's a result and it's okay. I have stuff to, to analyze. I have stuff to talk about, but maybe I don't feel like I, I've really dissected this match in a way that is the truest to kind of unlocking the keys to the outcome. Yeah, it's complicated. It's not always easy to see where things changed because these are two people with, you know, it can almost feel like a car crash, a tennis match. Like when you're playing, it can feel very, very much like that. Like yeah. things are moving so fast and one point make or break you sometimes. And it's hard to know which point. And it's sometimes it's like you're on some slope of a kind, whether it's going upward or downward. And you, f you don't feel in the momentum as a player. You Sometimes you feel the upward momentum if you're playing well, you're feeling you're getting confidence. But sometimes when you're slipping in a match, you have a sensation of slipping, but it's not really quite sure if it's slipping in the game or how bad it is. You know, that's a funny thing with tennis. Like things can quite easily get out of control with the scoring system. And suddenly you're like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm down a double break. What happened? You know, I was in contention, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Especially and, you know, they happen in predictable spots. Like how often do you have that nice lead or, or maybe you win the first set, especially in best of five, I think in the third set. Now I don't have that much experience playing, uh, in, in best of five. Um, but when you're up two sets to love and you relax and then suddenly, Whoa, I'm losing this third set. Like I, I just thought, I thought I had this match, but suddenly I'm trailing in the third set. And even as a viewer, sometimes I think in those matches, I can be like, Whoa, what happened? The, you know, the, the player who was losing the whole time just started getting the better of play. What changed here? And sometimes you miss it because you kind of lose focus because you get, you get into that rhythm of thinking, okay, this is what's happening in the match, and you expect that to just continue and continue. But just because it's happened for two hours doesn't mean it's going to happen for a third hour. No, that's true. I think sometimes the five set story format, like I'm calling it story format, but it's like the five set brings out that possibility of the title shift in the third, where like a three set match is a little bit too short. Like you don't have that chance of like, it, it's okay, you can come back from 6-3-3 love. And that's a little bit like yeah. it. But 
But there you have the two sets to love lead. You know, okay, never count out Novak. He starts uh, grinding his gears when he's down two sets. And he's like, okay, shit, what did I do? You know, I have to start playing. Right. But for many players, it's like, that's like where it's, it's on a scale. And this is where the match, the tipping point can, can change. And then it happens again at the fourth set. Because now it's like 2-1. And there's a whole narrative in this match where one guy took the lead. But the other guy is coming back. And for the crowd, that's pretty exciting. Even if you come in at the fourth set. You're like, okay, what's the storyline in this match? Yeah, he, he started really well, but then he lost his mind in the third set, and now we don't know what's going to happen in the fourth. Yeah, there's nothing like it. You know, you start, to, you start to think about the fitness. Who's got the better fitness? Who can last longer? Best of three, we're not really talking about that as much. Um, but at the same time, we don't want tennis to just be a war of attrition. Uh, best of five, you know, it's not always like that, but that, that comes into play or these, you know, major adjustments, as you mentioned, there's more time to make those. But I also think it's such a focus exercise. I know I'm kind of overusing this word a little bit, uh, in, in the last 10 minutes, but to actually stay locked in the whole time, I think is such a skill. And like, we love everyone in tennis. Like we all know theoretically how important the mental game is and we we use kind of blanket statements we make decisions good mental game bad mental game it's really much too vague you have to pinpoint what about this person's mental game is good what about it is bad i think one of the more underrated aspects because we like to i i guess the things that are really easy to see is who gets emotional right who loses it who stays or or you know on the other hand who stays really calm all the time these are the things that we see, but like, what about who focuses well? I think that's such a big deal. Uh, I know that it's something that like Tiafo, Wayne Ferreira, they've had a lot of focus on that where it's just like, okay, Francis, I think Wayne came in, noticed, look, like you just have these portions in a match where you just go away and you're not focusing. So that's what we need to figure out how to how to take out of your game so that you can play for three and a half hours and we can talk after the match and we can be like, you were, you were dialed in the whole time. And that's the goal. I think, you know, we've seen Tiafo with the best of five set success, um, kind of these last couple years now, it's because of that. And it, it's also been fascinating to hear how they've trained those things, right? Jonas, it's like one of the things that Wayne did was take away his phone during training. How are you going to focus during the match if you're on your phone all the time? You're used to having your phone as a stimulant while you're training um, or listening to music while you're running. Now, that to me is kind of like it, it's borderline. It's actually like a big sacrifice, right? It's hard to run without music, without listening to anything. But isn't that such good training for playing a tennis match? So I, I love that. Uh, to, to think about focus and what Tiafo and Ferreira have done. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. And I, I think like sometimes even like if you go to the gym uh, and you do weights, for example, if you listen to something, you don't put in as much effort because part of your attention is on what you're listening to. And it sounds like pretty stoic to be like, okay, I'm not going to bring my AirPods to the gym or even to the court or wherever uh, or to the jogging. But it's like I've noticed like I probably do better a better performance if I don't. So like the distraction is always there with the phone, with the music, with the podcast, whatever you're listening to. So 
I mean, I, I think like I, I work best when I'm listening and I'm doing something pretty mundane. Like if I'm doing dishes and listening to music or podcasts, yeah. I can drive and listen to stuff. Most people do. But then like if you're going to do something that's your profession, that's where you have to stay focused. It's I think we overestimate human capabilities when it comes to multitasking. I'm reading this book about focus right now from Johan Hari and it's it's called Lost a Stolen Focus about the generation where we're like always on our smartphones and devices and stuff and what it does to the to the community uh, of humankind over long term but also to like on short term to our you know focus and how we can actually perform because we lose a lot because we are constantly distracted by emails by messages by things that pop up you know so uh, I find yeah. that really interesting that I, I would love if more coaches could talk that openly about their process sometimes I feel like it's mm -hmm. tough to get these kind of replies Wayne is a smart guy obviously and and Tiafo is a very open and an engaging guy as well. But it would be nice to hear from other coaching player relationships as well. I totally agree, yeah. Uh, and I think coaches, it's a good move for coaches because they get, they get that PR. Like people in our position, we wanna talk about that kind of, those kinds of things. And I, I feel like some of the American coaches like Brad Stein um, as well, uh, they're very talkative, they're very open. And as a result, they get a lot of credit uh, where, you know, we don't talk about a Tommy Paul and a Francis Tiafo without, you know, mentioning Brad Stein and, and Wayne Ferreira, you know, these long-term partnerships, even like, even Paul Anacone and Taylor Fritz. Anacone's a big media figure. So, you know, what the things that Fritz is working on, um, they, you know, the, those things always get talked about. I think it's a good move for coaches uh, to put these things out there. Um, because, you know, they also have careers and public perception is important for them too. I mean, look at, uh, I guess like Patrick Maradoglu has gone the extra mile. Like he's practically a media entity. He's half coach, half media entity. Yeah, he's, uh, he's all over the place. He has like UTS, he has <laughs> his academy, he has a website, YouTube channel, whatnot. He doesn't like, he wants the whole tennis world in his uh, palm of his hand, you know. Yeah, uh, and when when you do that, you're obviously gonna make some enemies. I, I hear people like who are kind of discrediting his coaching <laughs> quite often, which I find pretty interesting. Uh, but but it's impressive what he's built, no matter what. Like he's uh, he's done like a real good job at like maximizing his personal brand. And I think for a lot of people, players or coaches, building a personal brand is not really in what they do. They're not interested in that. They're in the tennis bubble. They don't really know how to do that. And giving them more exposure, I think could help them like also help helping their careers. Cause I think like in the, on the ATP, the coaching relationships seem to last a bit longer, but on the WTA from the stats I've seen and everything, they're shorter relationships most often. Yeah. Right. So they change a lot more with there was Emma Raducanu, which is the most, you know, talked about maybe uh, example there, but it's like, it's in my opinion, obviously not a great sign when you keep changing coaches like Sverev had for a while where he was like, okay, Ferrero was a month and then another coach and then didn't work out and another coach. And you're like, what's happening? You know, you need to stick with something, you know? Yeah. I mean, how, how many of the greats can we say have had a lot of instability in their camp, not just coaches, but you look at agents, you look at, at physios, uh, a lot of the people who have, who have been with, with Roger and Novak and Rafa, uh, they, they were there the whole time, um, for the most part. I mean, and change is okay. Like, it's not like anytime there's a change, it should be seen as a negative thing, but yeah, I just don't see a lot of the, a lot of the all time greats. If I look for patterns, I see stability. 
I see uh, inner circles that they have a lot of trust in for a very, very long time, and there's a buy-in there. Um, yeah, it, it's we talk about the travel. We talk about the, the loneliness of the tour. You need to surround yourself with, with people who are who are uh, who you like to kind of be with. They become your family. They're, they're your they're your everything. And you know, in terms of what your work ethic is and what your habits are, you need to try to enjoy that tour life because you enjoy the people around you, and you need to you know feel good about about instilling those very very professional habits. I think that's that's so important. So yeah, I, the you know we kind of went from from one thing to another here, but. I, I like I look for the stability, you know, I absolutely do. And um there are a lot of interesting I mean Titi Pass we've seen this year. It seems like he's gone back and forth a little bit in terms of what he wants. And, you know, in the end it's gonna be Apostolos, it's gonna be back to his father. Uh Zverev is in a similar situation, but he seemed to figure that out, you know, about two years ago that okay, the whole father and coach thing. It's not going to work. We're just going to go father. And now Zverev has had that for a couple of years. Um, we've seen kind of, I think Felix is in an interesting spot with, with Tony coming in as a consultant and kind of being uh, a coach, but not, not fully the coach. And I don't know how, how that's kind of worked out or if that's created uh, some issues, obviously the health stuff. Yeah, a lot of this uh, young generation has had had some interesting storylines. But hey, Yon Yannick Sinner, he he had his development coach in Piatti, who he decided wasn't paying enough attention to him and was juggling too many things. And he said, "Look, it's not it's not right for me. He developed me. He's been my coach for my whole life. But I'm going to bring in Darren Cahill, and that has seemingly been an awesome relationship." The improvements that we're seeing from Yannick Sinner, his tinkering, right? The adjustments he's made. It's like every three months, Sinner has improved something. It's been beautiful to watch. And then Alcaraz and Ferrero, think about the lack of ego or the, the amount of trust that Alcaraz has in Ferrero because not one time has Ferrero told him something in the match that hasn't worked and then Alcaraz has been like, up in arms or, or what the heck, man, you told me he was going wide. He went T you're, you're, you're the worst. Like we see that all the time with other players. Not once have we seen that from Alcaraz that tells you something about their relationship. Yeah. Relationships are so important. I think like my, my friend is now like a new coach on the tour with, with Safiulin and, and, uh, it's his first kind of like serious coaching gig, but they seem to have really great chemistry. It seems to work out. He's, he's kind of inexperienced in a way, but he's also getting by because he loves tennis. He's also played futures himself, so he knows a bit of the grind. And uh, it's been great to see because it's, they've been doing really well. Like, uh, Safiulin has played some yeah. uh, fantastic tennis. I hope to get to chat with them when, I'm, when uh, they get back here in, in Marbella, right? So you see that the chemistry can be more important than anything else. You know, if you have bad chemistry... I think, like for example, Zverev was in a bad spot mentally, maybe for a while, and and you know couldn't work with uh, Ferrero. You know, before Ferrero took on Alcaraz, that was just like a disaster. Like he was late, and I heard some stories about that. But then, I think sometimes with with the tennis parent, it, it's a tough one. Uh, I know Apostolos and Stefanos a bit, but it's, it's like they um, 
it's tough because like you want to cut the cord <laughs> it's like umbilical cord and you know you want to you know i'm your my own person you know i want to be my only also on the, the wta right but it seems so tough but i don't know if it's the parent who just digs his heels or it's because like you grew up with this this is a person who created me and i grew up with this person and the, the bond is so strong i cannot change it now it's too strong yeah. uh, so that's a fascinating thing because what you rarely see a huge success like none of the goats are bringing around their parents you know like they they were more side people they were not like on the coaching team and i think it's tough to be like you know winning a bunch of grand slams with your father or mother it just feels that way i don't know if it's true or not i agree um i think most of them or, or a lot of players they they grow up with their parents being heavily involved um you know you look at the the williamses but like you know richard took them to a point and then recognized I'm not that guy anymore, right? Like I can take you this far. Now it's time for you to go to the people who know more than me and can do more than me. Um, and, you know, even though he was still uh, a figure looming, it was still, okay, uh, I'm no longer the main person. I think we see a lot of that. But you know what? That, that requires That requires minimal ego. Um, and I'm not, I'm not calling, you know, any tennis parents, I'm not saying that they have an oversized ego, but I am saying for, for any parent who developed their kid and then was willing to completely step aside and, and not intervene and be like, okay, I know that for, a someone like a developmental coach who is then willing to maybe take a different role as, okay, more of a parent, I'm, I'm not going to be as much of, uh, a hands-on coach anymore that takes minimal ego to say, okay, someone else knows more than me now, and I'm going to accept that, and I'm going to let that happen, right? Yeah, I 100% I agree. I think that's very impressive. I think that's kind of generous and, and, uh, and smart overall, because also I think it helps you maintain a more sensible relationship with your kid, right? So it's like when you're in a working relationship, I don't have any experience with this. I'm just talking about what I've seen, what I feel, you know, but it's like... That must be a bit complicated because like you're in a business partnership and which is very close. Like you're a coach that is relying on your son or daughter to win tennis matches. And if they're not winning tennis matches, you don't get as much money. Obviously, the kid is unhappy as well. But it's like it's not the best kind of dynamic. It can lead to some really ugly situations, which we have seen. You know, it's not like that tennis parents have the best reputation in history. Like they, they usually are quite tough to deal with for coaches. I talk to coaches all the time and, and having a really ardent, like really strong tennis parent can be a huge down, downturn for them. Like they don't really feel like taking on a student or uh, a player because like, okay, the parent is, believes that he or she still is the top dog here. And then you can't right. work because cause that's, not, that's not how it should be. Coaches want buy-in, right? It's like that, that's the key. It's like a diet, right? Uh, you can be a great coach. If there's no buy-in, it's not going to work. The diet can be great. If you don't follow the diet, if you question the diet and you cheat on the diet, diet's not going to work. It doesn't matter how good it is. So I, I think it's like there are uncomfortable things in tennis, right? Like all of us remember when we first started playing and we didn't use a back or a continental grip on our serve or a backhand grip on our serve, right? We did this, we did this one. That's how we all started. And the first coach who was like, hey, no, you need to grip the racket like this and pronate, we, that felt incredibly uncomfortable, right? 
And we missed serve after serve after serve. It stunk. We were double faulting every point. Everybody's had that experience. It's uncomfortable. But um, you have to buy in. You just have to trust and go through the process. So I think that's a very kind of juvenile uh, level of it, right? But I think at a, at a higher level, when you're making uh, adjustments and you're al- already a pro or something, when you have one, when you have two voices and maybe one's a parent and one's a real coach and the coach is having you do something that's uncomfortable, the parent is maybe questioning that. If you don't have that 100% buy-in, I think that that is really going to stunt your ability to develop, especially when it comes to doing things that are uncomfortable. 100%. Like, I think I, you, you can see it. Like if, if you're a coach, and sometimes it's a star coach, like there's someone who has like won eight you know, Grand Slam titles, for example. They bring in that, but they keep the parent. The parent is still like the chief in charge, the leader. Uh, that coach will not feel 100% validated or like he, he's not. What, what is this? Like I'm, I'm entering this situation where I have to go through the CEO of the operation, which is not the player, to get through my advice or to actually help the player. And, and then you're, you're hamstrung, right? You can't, you can't change a player like that or can't help. You can't assist. So I think that's, that's what you've seen in some situation. I think that it was what I heard with the Raducanu situation is that you know, her father brings in coaches just to like kind of distill, you know, their years of knowledge, take it and then sprinkle it on Emma and then take a new one and like a dish, you know, he's trying to make like a, a Petri dish here of, of, of like and turn it into a player. I, I doesn't seem to work that well. Like it does seem to have some, you create like a mental problem also for the player who has always new influences, you know, so it's, it's a strange uh, scenario. Yeah, you want identity as a player, right? Like you want to be confident in the things you do well and the way you do things. And that doesn't mean, you know, that's not antithetical to being well-rounded, but you need to have confidence in the way you do things and try to repeat them over and over and over again for for 10 years, ideally. Uh, Again, that doesn't mean you're not moving forward and you're not developing, but uh, that seems incredibly difficult to, to have a constantly, you know, every six months, someone comes in and says, we're going to do things this way. We're going to do things that way. Not just technical advice. Like what about routines? What about what you eat before a match and when, and how you stretch before a match and when, and like all of these different things that, that come into play with being a pro, when you have someone different coming in, they have a different idea of how to do things. It seems unbelievably difficult to, to be the best version of yourself when that's going on. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think we've seen some players struggle. And I think, like you mentioned, Ojer Al-Yassim is one of the guys been on my mind because I've seen him lose and lose and lose uh, kind of repeatedly this season. Uh, there were some health issues, obviously. But uh, also, it seems like maybe this relationship with Tony wasn't... I mean, it was good in a way that it worked for a, for a time. But then that he didn't have the 100% buy-in from Tony because Tony was still, obviously, Rafa's, you know, Tio. So he was, like, there to to still protect his his nephew, right? So uh, that made it a little bit weird because you want your 100% buying from the coach as well. That like, you're all, you know, we're in this together. It's you and me now. I need to win more tennis matches and that's it. Uh, so now he's struggled a lot. I don't know if you have any more thoughts about that, but it's been like a tough one. Can he turn it around for 2024, do you think? Or is like, so, I mean, the train is moving so fast that the new generation is coming all the time, you feel, you know, in tennis. I think he turns it around to an extent, right? So... 
I, I just I can't see because I, I don't think I've seen an example of this. I can't see a guy who I think he's 25 who yeah. at age 24 uh, breaks into the top 10 for the first time. And then age 25 becomes a, a someone who just doesn't have a, a super catastrophic and severe injury. Yes, it was a year where I think the knee gave him a lot of trouble, right? But it's one thing if you have a, a very, very severe injury. I just can't think of a player who has had the trajectory of Felix not only be a top 10 guy at age you know 24, but also be a top 20 guy uh, where he kind of stagnated for a little while, right? 21, 22, 23. We're looking at a top 20 player. How you know? How does a player like that suddenly f- not have the ability to be a top twenty player uh, for the rest of his career? I just I look at patterns and I look at how careers go and how they play out. And look, don't get me wrong. I think it's been a confusing year for Felix. The extent to which he struggled has been jarring. It's been surprising. Uh, even even if I didn't quite buy into the success that he had in in 2022 in terms of translating it into success at majors because I still don't think that he was uh, good enough from the baseline. I still don't think he was winning neutral rallies against elite players. Uh, I still think that it was a lot of reliance on first serve forehand dominance. Um, and I just wanted to see a little bit more in the return game, a little bit more out of the backhand, a little bit more point construction. So I came into this year thinking... Look, I, I don't think him tearing it up on the indoor hardcourt season is really going to translate, uh, but I still thought that he was going to be a top 10 player, top 15 player. Um, I, I think he's got to get back to that, that point because what, what logic could we possibly create where suddenly Felix can't win any matches for the rest of his career? I, I just can't see that happening. No, I agree. I think that he's 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 due something, but it, it's also weird to see. I, I cannot even you know watching tennis for so long and following the sport. And I remember he was very hyped, like even um, similar to Alcaraz from a very young age, right? Like people were like, "This guy, physically perfect tennis body, reads the game, big forehand, very whippy big forehand, uh, good serve." You know, so it was all there. Yeah. The package was all there. People were, were were hyping it, and and he kind of met the promises early on like you know quite rapid progress then he had a bit of a stagnation as you said like you know top 20 people were like okay what's what's happening when is FAA gonna you know break through and then you know he had that year when when like I, I agree with you completely like it was so so year. I mean it was a good year but it wasn't super impressive until he got to the fast indoor courts where he gets you know to more is instinctively hit the ball. I see sometimes with his shots, it feels like he, he, he shanks quite a lot for that kind of level of player he is. And he kind of, when he indoor, when the lower bounce, it seems to work better for him, the cleaner bounce, you know, and he seems to be able to just use his serve and do a lot of that one-two punch, which he does so well. Like we just go in, hammer yeah. a, a forehand in the, in the corner, right? So, uh, so we, that doesn't really, in tennis is such a complicated sport because like you have to master all the surfaces. And uh, and that still remains to be seen, I think. But uh, but yeah, I, I, he should be with his talent, be back. But then uh, you know there are more and more players coming, so you never know. Like it's not going to be as easy even for the guys like Sitsisverev to make their talent come true in the way they wanted it to. I, I see very little evidence, honestly. Uh, again, it's not. This isn't recency bias. I would have I would have kind of said the same thing uh, two years ago, uh, last year. I don't see much evidence that Felix is going to enter the tier one 
um, at any point. I think there are too many holes in the game. Um, and by the way, like mentally, I, I think there's a certain fragility with his confidence. You know, when he's confident, he's confident. Right? And all tennis players want that. All tennis players like that. But it's it's how easy, how easily is that kind of broken? And I think we see sometimes, and I think this has contributed to the struggles this year, Felix doesn't have a very uh, a very sturdy confidence. I think it it can be broken. It can go up and down. He's a momentum player. Uh, it's really key, getting back to the technical aspect, that he's serving well. I just want to add that you know the serving numbers are way down this year. First serves in, percentage is down, ace rate is down. It's such a big part of his game. And sometimes it gets underlooked because he's a great athlete and he's not— you know, he's not a six foot seven guy, but man, that first serve, it is, it's top seven in men's tennis. I remember last year I ranked it and I forget where I had it, but I, I know it was like top seven, top eight first serve in men's tennis. And uh, it needs to be firing. Um, it hasn't been this year. So I imagine, you know, next year starts serving great again, starts to win matches again, gets up to the, you know, if I were to guess between 15 and eight in the world, you know, that range, um, at some point, at some point in his career, again, maybe not next year, maybe the year after, uh, I don't see that much evidence though, that he's going to kind of break through that seal. No, me neither. I think it's tough now when you see that, I mean, like, like you said, Sinner and Alcaraz, they're both improving and they are like at the top of the game. If we take Novak out of the equation, um, so it's like, these guys are improving steadily and are bit more solid confidence i like what you said about this some players you see that and uh, and you can relate to it yourself if you're playing matches like i play on the seniors tour you know so i know like the the pains of, of playing and like how your mental flaws come up and, and down right but you can see it in some players that it's like it's much easier to prick a hole in, in the kind of fabric of their ego or like their their confidence like it's so much easier to just small things can start to break them down while with the goats or even alcaraz or like some some guys just seem impenetrable like they can have a bad yeah. set then it just they brush it off and like okay i'm gonna destroy you in the next set so don't worry about it you know that kind of confidence i think to win slams you need that you know unless it's like a one-hit wonder but you need that kind of strong foundational confidence to play well under pressure, you need that confidence. That, that's, that's another thing. Felix has played a lot of close matches this year. He's not winning them because uh, the big points aren't going well. And, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence, right? So it's, I think, a cycle, especially for someone who doesn't break serve all that much. You're going to play close matches, small margins, a lot of tie breaks. Is your forehand going to cooperate at five all in the tie break? And, and I think that just requires when those doubts seep in, that's going uh, to be a major uh, issue for a, for a player like that. Um, it, it's tough because it's a cycle. Uh, and, you know, losing breeds more losing and winning breeds more winning. That's the crazy part of it all. Yeah, yeah. Tennis is such a momentum sport. Like, it's crazy. The trend can, I mean, it can really drag you down into the the pits so <laughs> like that yeah. if you play if you're feeling or you can't hit the ball properly something goes i mean we've seen serves Sverev, sabalenka like suddenly these tall really strong serves can't hit a you know a normal serve it's like double faults like 20 double faults in a match like wh how is that even happening on this level of tennis but in tennis it can happen you know so it's kind of fascinating in that sense 
And we also had like Steph, you know, who's been struggling. Do you think Steph is, is back to his always, where do you think his potential is like in terms of, of coming back to uh, playing top five tennis? Because it's not been this year, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's, you know, potential for him to, to get back to where he was at the start of this year. Uh, I think, you know, stuff has happened with, I mean, I, you can trace it back. He had the, he had the right shoulder injury, which really disrupted his momentum after the Australian Open. I loved how he was playing in January. You know, I saw the first couple weeks leading up to the Australian Open. He stood out to me. I predicted him to make the, the Australian Open final as a result. I'm like, I love the way he's protecting his backhand. He's hitting that forehand big. He's serving well. Uh, he ends up making the Australian Open final. He loses to Novak. Um, but, you know, he gets that injury. And then since then, I think there's been the instability with the coaching. Um, and what I'm not seeing with Tsitsipas, other than Wimbledon, I thought he looked really fiery and competitive at Wimbledon. Uh, to me, he looks, and I'm talking mentally here, a little bit less competitive when he's playing matches. Uh, he is a little more resigned when he's in holes. And uh, I think he's left some matches on the table because of that. Uh, there were some signs of that last year. I, I don't know that Tsitsipas uh, still has the aspiration to be number one in the world, to win majors anymore. Um, I, I almost feel like it's been kind of taken away from him. When he was a young player, uh, he very much expected to beat Novak Djokovic if he's playing Novak Djokovic. And I don't get the sense that that's the case anymore. I don't get the, the fiery competitor that Tsitsipas was when he was 20, 21. And look, like I, I'm always hesitant to kind of play armchair psychologist when it comes to these things. Steph is kind of he he ha, he's given me not only the on court evidence where there have been matches that I've been that I've broken down from him in the last two years where I've pointed out here's a spot where he got discouraged and his effort level dipped because he didn't recover as hard to the middle as he could have. Or he made this silly decision going for the backhand winner down the line instead of hanging in the rally. Not only has he given me that on-court evidence, but he's also given me the, the, the quotes. You know, he's, he's said the things where, you know, he's saying things that come across as a little bit more resigned to his place in the tennis world as being, you know, secondary. Contender, but not great champion. Or, you know, even something he recently said about, about Paula, which is something that I've tried not to talk about or discuss because a lot of players are in relationships and it doesn't matter. We don't talk about it. So, you know, my philosophy at first was why should we focus on, on him being in a relationship with Bedosa when plenty of players are in romantic relationships and we don't talk about that at all. Uh, but, you know, w when he... When he says things like he said recently, which is that, you know, Bedosa has changed my mindset completely, changed my approach. Um, I don't have the quote in front of me, so I'm, I'm not going to get into specifics, but essentially saying I have more of a perspective in life where tennis isn't everything. I've heard a lot of people who have seen greatness, who have been near, near greatness, like uh, a recent conversation with Jose Higueras at the U.S. Open where we were talking about Alcaraz and Sinner. And Jose Higueras, who's coached Jim Courier, who's been around you know, Pete Sampras and, and all those guys, he said, you have to be obsessed with being the best. If you're not obsessed with being the best, that's going to put a cap on, on your potential. 
I do feel like Tsitsipas is kind of no longer obsessed with being the best. Um, now he can still he can still make year end championships. He's that talented. He cannot get any better from where he is right now, and just I guess you know find a better mental headspace, compete hard, not make any improvements on his backhand return, not make any improvements on defending his backhand, not changing any tactics, not add to his game, and he can still be five in the world, six in the world. I think he'll get to a point where where you know he's that guy again, but. Similar to Felix, I don't see him breaking through to that tier one. Yeah, sometimes you can feel like that there's some air that kind of goes out of a player. Maybe there's too many heavy losses. There's some personal stuff, the coaching situations that are happening. And you can see it on the court, like that hunger is not there. I mean, like players can go through it for years. You know, it can be like even Novak had it for a while is like when he had, you know, the period where he just didn't seem to care about winning matches. And now you see Novak these days and he's like, you know, obsessed with like, I am winning this tennis match. There's no other way. Like there's no other way, whether that's like found in, in, in some like quiet confidence he has inside now after winning so many slams. But you can see the desire still, like no matter how many records he's breaking, he's still hungry. He's not going to let that guy beat him, you know, and you need that like tennis. There's a cutthroat, right? So if you would see that dissipate a little bit, you need to take some time and figure out how you get that back. Because I don't like you can't compete on a world class sport stage without it. You know, it's not on the right. highest level on and off the court. Right. We yeah. see you on the court. And if, if you're you know competing like an animal. And, you know, you're, you're valuing every single point and you're putting, you're chasing down the extra balls and, you know, you're, you're focusing and you're emotionally engaged in the match. We see that on the court, but also how are you training, right? And are you making those kinds of sacrifices? Um, and they are sacrifices. I mean, the, the lifestyle that, I mean, Novak has given interviews all the time where it's like his diet, his training regimen, that ain't easy. Like that that's not a walk in the park. Like the hours and the attention to detail that he's putting in is insane. Um, have you seen that too with CT Pass? Because sometimes I feel bad about making that assessment. Because, you know, I I try to keep things if if they're technical, I try to keep them technical, right? Like if if we're talking about 2021 Yannick Sinner, um, I'm looking at a guy who likes to be a hyper offensive player who doesn't have a serve that puts him in a position to be that guy, right? I, I'd much rather talk about something like that, where it's it's in front of me, it's the tennis. I don't need to get into the psychology. Uh, for me, that's that's preferable. But for Tsitsipas, I I'm just seeing this other side of things where I don't get the sense that the that the fiery competitor is still a hundred percent there. No, I agree. I think that's my feeling as well. Like it's been, it's been a little bit. I think it's been a, a year of confusion. You know, going back. You know, coming back from injury. Then Love Life, uh, he's been testing strings. It's been like a little bit all over the place. Coaches, there's been too much. Yeah. I think you need a steady um, situation. Like, I mean, like Fed, Rafa, Novak, they're so good at creating this environment where they're like in a box. You know, everything's taken care of. It doesn't matter if they have four kids, like in Fed's case. You know, he's like making sure he's happy traveling. He's in a good mood. Everything's taken care of. He has created this ecosystem, like a CEO of his tennis career, which is easily underlooked like how you how you set up your, your that's the player it's up to the player who's your coach who's your wife how do you do deal with your family situation how do you deal with your physio your trainer your food everything it's up to you really like you can have yeah. the best experts in the world but you need to do it and you need to set up this environment if you want to be the best and, and novak is is the best 
I mean, right now especially, but like the three guys, they've always been so professional at doing this thing, you know. That's a great point, Jonas. And remember, remember what Tsitsipas said after he lost um, at, at Roland Garros this year to Alcaraz really, really badly, very flat performance. He said, before the match, I took a melatonin and I took a nap. And as a result, I felt really tired and out of it on the court. So he got his pre-match and he said, I learned my lesson. And, you know, that pre-match routine, I won't repeat that again. It takes time to figure out what to do before matches, how to prepare for matches, getting that routine that you just described with Roger and Novak and Rafa down to a science so that you can repeat it and you know what works for you. Steph is 25. When I hear that kind of thing, it, it, it's not what I'm looking to hear if, if, you know, if someone's asking me, is he going to win a slam? At 25 years old, I don't really still want to hear the, I got the pre-match routine completely wrong at Roland Garros. I took a melatonin and I was out of it for my match. It's just, it's not really what I'm looking for. If you have a team <laughs> around you that you feel like you can trust and you feel like they're really like uh, pro at what they're doing, whether it's diet or physio or whatever, you know, uh, I think it helps so much because you get like a guideline. It's not easy to keep track of everything yourself, but if you kind of um, doing it, I mean, people in professional sports, they really need to have this like super routines. There's no other way, right? There's like, it's crazy. Like people can have routines on the lowest level and it helps a lot, you know? Uh, so it's like these types of mistakes are not what you would invest your hard earned stocks in, right? That's not where you want to see the mistakes happen. Like anyone can have a bad period due to stuff happening in your life that's out of your control. But these things that you can, can control, they should be controlled. Like that's really it. And I think that's, that's what the best guys do really well. Like they control all the controllables so they're ready for the uncontrollables. No, that's, that's the basics of it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And uh, you hear a lot of guys also, like Chris Eubanks is, is, comes to mind they start to take the pre-match and post-match stuff a little bit more seriously, and it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, Chris, at 27 years old, uh, has had this kind of, this big breakthrough, right? He's now an ATP-level player, a top 30 player, whereas he was a challenger-level player for, for his career prior to, to 2023. And, you know, he's talked about how, like, he would just not take his warm-ups all that seriously and his cooldowns all that seriously. How how crazy is it to hear that when someone makes it and it's not the only thing he's talked about in terms of improving. How crazy is it to hear though that that a player can make that big a leap, their life can change and they're talking about just going to the massage after the match, which is by the way offered to all players for free. Uh not skipping it do the massage every match or before the match, like spend, spend 45 minutes warming up instead of 15 minutes. And those little things can make that big a difference. It's actually, uh, it's actually crazy, but it, it comes down to once again, the rigors of the tour. You do this for 11 months. It's a lot. It's hard. And uh, you need to kind of go the extra mile with your body or, uh, or you're going to kind of not be able to perform and, and withstand that gauntlet. Yeah, I saw some very positive stuff from him. The first time I saw him live, I went to, to Mallorca, you know, and he, he won that tournament in the end. But uh, he seems to have a pretty happy, positive disposition, which I think can help 
I can also be yeah. a detriment maybe in some cases. But I think he's a young guy, so he, he, he's kind of figuring it out. Uh, but obviously you need your... I mean, what I would pay if I was a player of that kind of caliber where there's some money and, and some, some investments in my career, I would really try to get the best uh, guidance in terms of like preparation and, you know, deacceleration from the match. Like what, all my habits, like how can I create a habit system and then do some like blood work or whatever, some measurements to see how my body responds. I mean, just feel it out helps as well, right? But getting the sleep, doing all this basic stuff that anyone can feel in their daily life. Like if I feel, if I sleep badly, I, I will perform badly at work, on the tennis court, wherever I go, I will be really tired and, and have a pretty bad day. And, but some players, they seem to be a bit like happy-go-lucky, like, okay, I just figured out that uh, this is important, you know, uh, and they're professional athletes. So, so that's kind of like, you need to kind of smell the coffee pretty, pretty early, you know, if you're uh, in professional sports. Yeah, or, or you're content, right? Or you're 40 in the world and you have a certain lifestyle and you're all right with that, you know? And, and you like to go out on the road. So you are lacking sleep and you are drinking alcohol and you're 40 in the world and you're making enough money and, and you're okay with that. Uh, that's going to be some players. And uh, I, I guess like from, from, from our perspective, it's like if, if that's you, that's you, okay. Um, it, it's, it's a funny world. Yeah. Sleep, sleep is a big one, huh? I mean, it's, it's important and it's really easy. I think to, to not treat it as important as, as it is. Yeah. There's been so much science now. And you know, if you listen to podcasts, you get into like the Huberman and all that stuff, like where people talk about sleep, but it's, and then you, I've really started like trying to measure a bit of my sleep, which is not that important, but I really feel when I, when I don't like have any alcohol, when I'm trying to limit digital devices and, and put my sleep at a premium, I feel so much better the next day. It's, it's insane. Like, I mean, I just, just having like two beers and just going to bed and just looking at your phone for half an hour, it seems to really damage the sleep. That's not even that extreme. You know, it's not like I'm going to bed at yeah. four in the morning. It's like still, you still feel the next day we wake up like, where am I? What am I doing? Why am I feeling so tired? You know, uh, when you can feel like almost jump out of bed if you have a very good night's sleep. So I think that's, that's a very important thing to look out for if you're in, you know, for anyone, but, but for sure for the players, because for them, like being tired and having a match at 11, hmm, that's not going to be good. No, it, it, it's rough. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of contrasting levels of dedication and professionalism on the tour. Like you talk to, you talk to any players and, and they'll kind of tell you that. And I, I feel like it's also known in the locker room, like, Oh, you know, this guy's really, really talented, but doesn't maybe maximize it or the opposite. It's like, this guy is, is only 60 in the world, but you know, he can't do better because he just, he takes this really seriously. He's got great habits. He works as hard as he can and it's just, all right, you know, the weapons are the weapons and, you know, the God-given talent is, is what it is. Yeah, and that, that kind of leads me to, um, to our favorite Nick, like Nick Curious. What do you think? Like he, he played like one tournament this year or how many tournaments did he play? Like yeah. it's, he wasn't one. hardly playing. What do you think of his 2024? And, and uh, I mean, he's obviously bringing crowds to tennis, which is, which is great. But this year he didn't bring himself to tennis even. So, so what's going to happen yeah. next year? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
I, I think we saw the best version of, of Nick in, in 2022. Like we no longer have to wonder what would happen if Nick Kyrgios worked hard. We, we got our answer. Like it, it happened. And, you know, you can look at his ranking at the end of the year, but it's misleading. Uh, if you actually look at his win rate and how well he did against top 10 competition, it is very, very fair to say Nick Kyrgios was a top 10, probably top eight player on the tour. So that's what happens when he works on, on his fitness. And uh, when he's on the match court, he really cares about the outcome. Anybody who watched him in 2022, I don't care what he says in press. He cared about every single match. Like watch him even when he was losing. Watch him play Hatchinov at the U.S. Open. He was absolutely furious with himself uh, for, for losing that quarterfinal at the U.S. Open. Um, so yeah, like he was fit. His body was holding up. I remember at the start of the, the hardcore season, I think he might have like won DC. Um, and then he goes on maybe to, uh, to Canada or no, not Canada. I think, you know, Cincinnati. He makes the quarters in Canada. Then he goes to Cincinnati. Whatever it was, I, I'm forgetting the specifics of it. I kept thinking this is where Nick's body quits. This is where Nick's body says no more tennis. I'm done. And we just weren't getting to that place with Kyrgios last year. Uh, he just kept going and going and going. And I, I've heard stories like Mark Woodford, um, who, you know, he's well-connected in Australian tennis, of course. He was talking about how much fitness Nick was doing and how he was, like, paying extra. He was keeping his physio with him all year long. Um, the plan was that Nick's physio was going to go back to Australia and Nick was like, I think for the, for North America, he was like, Nope, never mind. I'm paying you extra. You're staying with me. We're going to keep doing this. So yeah, like that was dedicated Nick Kyrgios. We saw it. It was great. I guess this year it's like, I, I guess you give him a pass. You know, the knee injury seemed serious. I give him the benefit of the doubt to be honest, but I don't know if we're going to see Nick replicate that. It's impossible to know. Are we going to see Kyrgios ever again put in a ton of effort on the court, be really, really happy off the court? And I think those two things are intertwined. Uh, and also just seem to put in a lot of work in the gym and kind of embrace that aspect of it. It's possible we never see it again. It's possible we do see it again. I missed watching him play tennis this year, though. That was fun. That was fun in 2022. I enjoyed that. And uh, the tour, you know, the tour is better. Like, forget the sideshow, the discourse, the I hate Nick, the I love Nick. It's really fun to watch him play tennis, especially when, you know, when he's putting in the effort. So I hope he comes back strong. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think, like, he's, he's a guy that sometimes I don't feel like watching because he watched so much tennis, you know, and, and we're like, uh, when I'm live at the event, I watch a lot of tennis, uh, and so that's always fun because it's live. But on watching, you know, tennis TV when there's like a third round in a ATP 500, not always the most exciting. But a Nick match, I want to catch, you know, if I can. Like, it's, he's one of those players that bring out, you know, okay, I'm gonna go watch this because this is gonna it's gonna be good of some kind. You're gonna get something out of it, right? And yeah. you know, the, the, with his uh, huge talent. So, and I think, like you said, it was very well put. Like 2022 was top Nick. And I think he felt some almost like vindication or, or relief. He showed like, okay, if I put my mind to it, I've been fooling around, not feeling mentally 100% over all these years. You know, I have my issues. 
but now I feel good. I have a girlfriend. I'm getting married. All this stuff seems to come into play. I'm putting effort in. Then I can compete with Novak Djokovic even. I mean, I'll, I'll lose because Novak is Novak, but I got there. I showed that I am second tier after the, the three goats. You know, I'm on that level where, okay, there are guys that are a little bit more exceptional, but they're exceptional in history. And if I'm on my best game, I'm right behind them. And that's, I think that's really what he wanted, you know. And he showed the world that that's, yeah. that's what he has if he brings it. So uh, I really also hope that he keeps on bringing it. Uh, I was in his, uh, sitting in his box in, in the Stuttgart when he was there on the grass season and really got the full experience of, I think he's, he really loves winning but also hates losing so much or hates underperforming that it hurts him almost on a, like a physical plane. And I think people don't really maybe get him wrong that he seems not to care, but maybe he cares too much. I think that is sometimes the problem. Like he cares so much about playing the tennis he can play that it's like almost physically, you know, impossible for him not to be on that level and, and keep playing. And it feels so bad. And then he that shows in tantrums and stuff like that. So and he didn't even mm. bring a coach. He had like his his agent slash friend and his girlfriend. And that was the team, you know, so. He, he never, he's never had a coach. I give him credit for that because, you know, his, his philosophy or his take on it is I am uncoachable. It would be unfair to hire a coach because it's not going to work. Uh, and I'm like, Hey, well done. Like, at least you know that about yourself. At least you have that self-awareness. Uh, that's an interesting point you make though, about Nick caring too much. I certainly think that he does care a lot about what people think of him, uh, and, you know, he's very online, um, whether it be media, whether it be fans, that, that public perception, I think he takes it very personally. Uh, I think sometimes that can be, you know, I think he's a sensitive person and, you know, and I think that can be something that he has to grapple with. Um, so yeah, I, I think that plays into kind of what, what you're saying about not really hating to lose so much because because there is a sense of uh expectation that you know I need to show that I am I am great and uh not only great for tennis which he always kind of defends himself for being great for tennis uh but also a great player yeah he's his own PR team you know but he's like I always feel for the players that get lost in the whirlwind of like X or Twitter or Instagram DMs or whatever, like where, where they feel that they need to battle. I mean, it happens to all public personas at some point, it seems like, but it's like where you need to go and defend yourself to, to the general population. And I don't think that's generally good. Like it's better to just post and ghost or just stay off. But for some players, and, and I think a lot of tennis players are more sensitive than we maybe think or give them credit for. Oh, yeah. They, they have, playing an individual sport, they were maybe raised, you know, in a specific situation or, or they have uh, like, it's a little bit of a bubble when you grow up as a tennis player, like professional tennis players live in a bit of a bubble. So they can turn very sensitive. They are a bit coddled, but they can also be depending on your circumstances, not coddled at all. So uh, it's just one guy or girl. And then, you know, the whole internet is just bashing them for something they said these days. And, and it's hard to know how to respond. They might not have like a huge team of media. It's not a part of a team where there's an organization where the coach can go out and say, hey, I stand for my players. We're a team. We're the this. Like it, it, you're just one person, you know, in the end. And you hire the rest of the team. So it's, it's a tricky situation to deal with for a lot of players. I think they feel like there's a lot of pressure on just them as a person, you know. Yeah, that's a fantastic point because uh, there's been a lot of talk about 
online abuse, you know, in, in DMs and, and such for that the tennis players have to face. Uh, all athletes, all athletes are getting that, right? It, it's not yeah. just tennis players. It's tennis players who are mainly, and I have seen it in other sports, but tennis players who are mainly uh, putting it out there and talking about it, uh, voicing their concerns about it or complaining about it. I don't know. I don't know how to characterize it. Uh, it, it it's horrible, right? It's understandable that a human being would be affected by that, but it's absolutely happening to every single person who plays sports. Uh, it's not a tennis problem. It is a, it is a 2023 public figure problem where people are, are, are betting on sports and caring about sports. It's not just gamblers. It's a lot of gamblers, obviously. Um, yeah, so, so this is just a reality. Man, it's going to be fascinating to see how these young players deal with it and internalize it. And it's going to be really important. I mean, we had Coco Golf just win the U.S. Open and talk about her haters right away. Right away. It was like one of the first things she talked about was her haters. Um, and that, you know, basically she recognizes and internalizes all the doubt uh, you know, you, some players will use that as in a positive way. They'll, they'll use it as fuel. They can turn it into something healthy. A lot of players are going to struggle to, to turn it into something healthy. It's concerning. I mean, I, I think there just needs to be a lot of consideration if you are part of a player support group of just making sure is social media having a negative effect here or, or is it not, you know? It's a tricky thing because like nowadays they build these personal brands and tennis, like you, you're not making like loads and loads of money out if you're outside top hundred, right? So uh, you need to take every opportunity you can, maybe have a social personality so you can get some sponsors and get some deals, even if it's smaller deals. And the big big players, obviously they get bigger deals, so they, they need that. And uh, that's kind of their obligation. Like you need to post something. We were doing a commercial together, you and uh, you know Red Bull. So you have to post this. And then you have people in the comments and the access to public people, people in general, like it's crazy today. Like it's, it's obviously never happened before. So now anyone can DM you and, and ask questions. I'm sure they're DMing you and asking like, oh, what do you think about this match? Or I'm getting mainly DMs like, oh, I have uh, 6,500 racket questions. Uh, and uh, that happens, you know, and you reply to one and then you have 6,499 left. And that's, that's like a thing where the access and you want to be a nice person. And I think they can struggle with that. Like they can get nice messages, but they know if they reply to it, they open the Pandora's box of like, oh no, there will be a billion more questions now or like other interactions and stuff. So it must be tricky to handle it for any public person. But for sports, you have that extra spice of like, did you win? Did you lose? Did someone have money on it or not? Or was it just like your favorite team or player that lost? And now you're angry about it. Yeah, absolutely correct. And especially for, well, I guess for all players, brands decide how much you're worth now, in part based on how many followers you have. You have X amount of followers, that's X amount of money. I mean, it's, it's a very simple equation here. So, you know, for everybody who, who says just, come, you know, stay off of it, right? Don't, don't log on really, really much easier said than done uh, for these guys, you know, can you have someone else do it for you if you can afford it? Uh, and it's not like only the, the top players are, are getting DMs about their performance. Challenger level players are getting it too. Um, 
So it's a very, very tough situation. I don't know if like you've experienced this at all, but I know, you know, for me, uh, just getting YouTube comments is in, comments and getting feedback on your work. There is something psychologically where the negative stuff is much more impactful than the positive stuff, right? Like I have a great audience. Like I get so many compliments. It's so positive. Uh, but it, it, it's unfortunate and I wish it wasn't like this where the compliments don't stick with you as much as the, the insults do. I think tennis players also feel that, right? They have these great fan bases, these great support groups, a lot of people saying nice things, but it, it's just a, a dynamic where the, the bad stuff, the ugly stuff, it has a bigger impact on you. I think, yeah, it's probably because it's more rare. I mean, there's probably some much smarter psychological explanation, uh, but it's like also if you get like a million positive comments and you get like one pretty nasty comment, that also stands out. And it's not something you experience so much in general life. Like if you're standing in an elevator, nobody's turning their heads and you, you fucking idiot. Like, what are you standing here in the elevator? Nobody's going to do that, you know, unless they're really, uh, you know, weird. But so it's like suddenly you have that someone just keyboard warrior hitting you with this like angry letters, you know, and, and you're from nowhere and you're like, what, what, what did I do? What, what is happening in your life that I deserve this? But it's just a part of the game. It's, it's a very strange scenario because you don't have any face. You don't have anything. It's just, just there in the void. But I think most people just are open with it these days that it does affect them. Like I think people in the beginning maybe try to be like, I don't give a shit. I, I just, you know, scroll through them and laugh. Ha, 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 ha. I think you get you get affected, especially if you have a lot of normal comments and then suddenly you get some like stupid ones and you're like, hmm, what, is there something constructive here or should I, well, how should I react? Because you don't have any kind of training to how to react to this, you know? Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, a lot of the time when you respond to someone and you show them that you're a human, they'll actually be like, oh shit, like never mind, <laughs> you know? But yeah, um, yeah I, I mean... I don't know. I don't know if this is going to get better or, or what can even be done. I mean, I remember Iga in the press conference was like, you know, asking journalists to try to denounce uh, online abuse, and I'm here. I am thinking, man, if journalists could snap their fingers and end online abuse, they would be first in line. Do not worry about that. They would be first in line. Uh, they they just don't have any any sway or any power, and they're often victims of it. So it's really hard, hard situation. Yeah, everyone in media, everyone with an opinion, they, they will get a counter opinion at some point. Like if, you, if you're accessible, like someone will come out of the blue, especially if you have a YouTube channel. People think that it's like you're, you want to invite this stuff, but it's like you enjoy doing what you do. You think you do it pretty well, so you just keep doing it. And the, the comments thing is like a, its own animal, right? It's not, it didn't technically have to be there. You probably keep on doing it, you know. Okay, get some good feedback. It's helpful, but it's also... It's like, a, like, like you said, the negative feedback like sticks with you longer. But I mean, after a, long, after a while, you, you start being like, next day you forget it. But maybe for a few hours, you're like simmering a bit, you know? I, I, I know some people, like I talked about this in a previous podcast where, for example, like the, I've, I have followed some chess YouTubers because I used to play chess when I was younger. Uh, and one guy, he, he posts like the pin of shame. So if it's an ugly comment, he puts it at the top. So he gets more fan engagement. He's, you know, he's good with the YouTube game. Like, so just to get the algorithm to see, oh, there's huge engagement here and everybody's defending him because, you know, it's pretty smart. But also you put some negative stuff at the top. So I don't know if that's so good for you either. <laughs> uh, I have noticed with TikTok and uh, I'm not really on TikTok and I, 
I have someone who who I have helped me with it and and post on it for me. Um, but I I follow it obviously, like I keep tabs on the page and everything. Uh, the negative, like the TikToks that for some reason get disagreement or some sort of negative reaction, they just get the most views. You know, to the point where it's like it's almost like the best strategy for TikTok growth would be to like say crazy shit. I mean, it's been really eye-opening to see that. Like the algorithm wants people, it almost wants people to disagree and, and just be angry about it. Yeah, I think I think sometimes, I think social media, I think Twitter is a little bit like that. Like I'm not big on Twitter anymore. I used to be more when I did other things before Tennis Nerd. But then it's like, it seems to push like the negative narratives higher up. Like, so it seems to reward the toxic stuff. And, and because that, yeah. I guess, gets engagement. People will get very angry about something, feel it more strongly than they feel like even if they watch like a cute puppy returning to the soldier or, or vice versa, you know? So there's, you know, cute animals is something you want to share, but anger is much stronger of like emotion where you have to react. So people then react and then the algorithm is super happy because you're reacting like, oh yeah, this made you angry. I knew it. So now we're, we're all happy because we're all angry, right? It's just so stupid in a right. way. And counterproductive for humanity, you would you would think like as a, as a human experiment as, as social media is, it feels like that would be the if you kind of would uh, kind of backtrace it, that would be the completely wrong way to set it up. If you would like just care for humanity and not for business and numbers, you'd be like, this is very bad. We should not do it like this because this can lead to this. But we're we're, sl we're learning this way instead, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's the attention. I, there's a really good. Uh, uh, I forget what it was called. Um, there's a really good documentary on this, you know, on, on social media recently that I think got pretty popular. But, you know, when you break it down, it's like, what what business are they in? They're in the eyeballs business. They're in the attention business. And they do not design this for the the good of humanity. They design it so that you stay on the screen longer and, and you click more. Uh, that's it. So... You know, once you understand that, right, you start to kind of get what's going on here. Yeah, it's it's on un, it's unhealthy. Uh, there's ways to curate it in a way where it's better. Um, I mean, now it's funny. There's like a, on on Twitter or X. There's for you and there's following, and I have noticed right for you. That's where you get a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, like even even if it's tennis related, like a lot of a lot of rabid fan base kind of points and, you know, just like bias, like tearing down players and, uh, following much better place for me now, sometimes less interesting place, but healthier place, smarter place. It's, it's funny how it works. Yeah. So how do you, um, how do you, do you struggle with the social media use? Because I mean, you're in social media, you're having a YouTube channel, you need to follow the tennis tour. It's what you do. Do you sometimes struggle with that? Like that it's, it's just too much or, you know, just staying away from the screen or results or whatever, you know? I have struggled with it in the past. I, I'm in a pretty, I feel good about where I'm at now. I've kind of learned, but, you know, I used to spend a ton of time on Twitter and I, it got to a point where like sometimes there would be things that would happen that were very unpleasant that would, you know, kind of like ruin my day or something, right? Like one, one example, this was just, it sticks out, I guess, because of the recency of it or because of how frustrating it was. Like I, I sent out a tweet uh, during 
U.S. Open 2022 about how how much of an abnormality Alcaraz is physically, right? Just physically speaking at his age, what he can do, just how different and special it is. It became this whole thing of like basically people interpreting it as I, I hinted that he was doping, right? <laughs> For no reason. And, you know, as when, when enough people tweet about it, that interpretation, obviously it starts the cycle of interpreting what I said as that. And uh, that's just like one example of something that would happen. And here I am getting, getting attacked uh, for saying something that, first of all, first of all, I would never do that. Anybody who knows who I am, which for the most part, I'm not famous enough. So most people who are seeing the tweet do not know who I am. Uh, anyone who follows me knows that's not what I was saying. But all of these strangers who don't know who I am are seeing this, interpreting it in a certain way for no reason, but because one person did it and then it started the cycle. And uh, yeah, it becomes a super unpleasant thing. I've changed the way I tweet. I do not feel the need anymore when something happens to tweet about it just for the sake of tweeting about it. Uh, where I used to feel compelled, big story, I got to get a tweet out and I'm going to tweet my opinion. And, you know, I, I stopped doing that. So sometimes there's something that's being argued about, like, let's say the Shelton celebration thing. That's a good example. Everybody's giving their opinion, 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 opinion. I used to feel as a content creator, like I had to come in and give my opinion. I have made the adjustment in my life where it's like, I no longer feel like I need to. If I want to, I go and I do it. But honestly, I've kind of shied away from controversy on Twitter. And it's because I'm happier that way. It just makes me feel better that way. I don't get this, you know, feeling of fulfillment when, you know, a tweet gets a thousand likes as much as I get this feeling of like kind of yuckiness when I'm getting a lot of hate, you know, where it, I've just realized it's not worth it. And guess how much money I make for a viral tweet? Zero dollars. <laughs> Zero dollars and zero cents. Zero dollars I get. So I would much rather go to YouTube, have a, a platform where I'm able to explain myself, talk to an audience who knows me for the most part. I mean, there's going to be some new people and make money on, on the content and the work that I'm putting in. And that's why my philosophy has changed to a place where I'm favoring YouTube. I don't need every opinion on Twitter. I think it's sensible, like I, I thought about that now because time is very limited, you know, and if you're like a one-man band, like most of us content creators are in a way, whether we have help with editing or, or something like that, but uh, it's like you can't be everywhere, right? Like some people try to be everywhere. I've tried too much to be everywhere. You have to find where you think you do the best work, maybe, the platforms you do your best work and where your kind of work works best. Also, you get rewards. Like, so example, if you get some money on YouTube, like from the ad revenues and, and possible sponsors and so on, it's also a platform where it gives you time to say whatever you want. Like you said, like Twitter, it always had this, I mean, obviously they increased the, the limitation of, of how much you can use it, but, but it's like still 280 characters or whatever it is now, it's not enough to have like a, a, like a common sense dialogue. And, and people are generally, it feels like on that platform looking for like a hot take so they can tear someone down 
or pile yeah. on it. Like it feels like a little bit of pile on. I even removed it from my phone because I was like tired of it because I, I just I don't use it a lot. And I went on there and I just saw like negativity. I was probably in the wrong feed though because <laughs> I didn't know they changed <laughs> that. <laughs> and it was just like really horrible shit happening. And I'm like, what is this? Like I'm not feeling good with this stuff anymore. I'm like, I'm deleting the app, right? So uh, I feel like Insta is pretty manageable. You just put like some video and these kind of video platforms like Insta, YouTube, TikTok is a little bit its own beast, but it's, it's also there. Yeah. You can put like a one minute, one thirty in some cases reaction, or you can put longer form co content where you have time to explain your opinion. So in, in, oh, a, yeah. in a tweet, you don't have, you write something about Alcaraz being amazingly fit and people be like, because people love to have a conspiracy, conspiracy theories. They love to see flaws in something. So they'd be like, oh, it's on the, you know, physical enhancement drugs, you know, that's going to come straight away, whatever you say. I mean, Nadal had that for many, many years. Like everybody's talking about his biceps, how big they are, and there must be something wrong. Because people love to look for that. Even if it's far from true, they, they love it, you know. So that's where everything's yeah. going to go in the end. And that's quite frustrating. By the way, what do you feel about Alcaraz 2024? What do you see in your crystal ball for Alcaraz, Djokovic, and the rest? Okay, I'll answer that in a sec real quick. Yeah, yeah, do the it. Yeah, no, I, it was just like something I thought about now when we talked about Alcaraz. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Halep thing um, yeah, is a, a great one, yeah. example. I did not tweet about it. I, I, I tweeted a, a, a stat about it because it was just a stat. I wanted to put it out there. I didn't really tweet my opinion on it. I, I talked 15 minutes about it on YouTube, 15 minutes just about the Halep thing. There's no way that I could get that 15 minutes of content and thoughts and hopefully nuance in, in a tweet. Zero chance. So that, that's a great point, and that's a big part of why I, I've come to just favor YouTube. Um, Alcaraz 2024, I just, uh, I, I'm curious to see what the off season is like. I think he, he's better this year than he was last year, which was not a given. Um, he was so good in 2022 and so young. Uh, sometimes we see, you know, a young player have a period of, of stagnation. Maybe some things get worse. Maybe some things that, he could get better, don't get better all that fast. But I think this year he really improved on, on most of the things I wanted to see him improve on. Uh, I wanted to see uh, the first serve get a little bit better, the decision-making get more sound. Like I wanted to see him pick spots and matches where he decides to be more solid, and I think he's added that to his game, uh, not you know still maintaining the aggressive identity, but also understanding for whatever reason moments where, okay, this is – this is where it's time not to miss, and it's time to play a little bit safer with more margin. And Alcaraz, he doesn't default to that, but he has that in his bag now. Uh, he's done some good things, I think, to start to absorb pace better on his forehand. I think that's still maybe a work in progress. Uh, he's altered his return position, where now I think he's comfortable returning from super deep when he wants to get more returns in play. Uh, we saw the block return at Wimbledon. There's so many things he's doing this year that he couldn't do last year. He's developed so fast. It's so exciting to see where he goes from here. In reality, though, if I were to boil it down, I think in the offseason, um, it, it, it comes down to mostly seeing what he can do with that first serve. If you power rank the first serves in the top 10, Alcaraz is, is last. He's 10th. Uh, I, I have Runa at 9th. I know I actually ranked them, you know, 
one through 10 recently, and I forget exactly what I had, but Alcaraz was 10th, and I didn't need to think about it too hard. Now, granted, the, the first serves in the top 10 are all pretty good, and uh, it says something that Alcaraz is 10th. It says that they're, they're serving you know, really, really well right now, uh, but there's still a lot of room for improvement there, and I, I think technically speaking, even if I talked to, like I talked to Carousel recently, and he said, like, all of Alcaraz's technique is so flowy, right? So natural looking, very elastic, right? The serve looks much more mechanical, robotic, a little stop and start. So that's the shot for him that, uh, that isn't quite as natural. I think there's uh, still a lot of room to improve in that area. Uh, that's the most obvious technical improvement, but there are still things, you know, like, like nerve management that I still think he's, uh, he's learning. And as, as well as he did at Wimbledon, I mean, hey, you give him an A plus for that performance at Wimbledon in the final where he managed his nerves. There are still moments, if you look at the year as a whole, there are still moments where it's not so good. Uh, you break down his numbers against Sinner in the head-to-head. My goodness, the, the breakpoint conversions are, is plummeting compared to his return points won. He's like 9% worse return points won on breakpoints versus where, he, where he's at on a regular return point. Uh, huge difference, and the sample size is big now. We're looking at well over, uh, l- looking at, I'm pretty sure, well over 60 break points in our sample size. A lot of points. Um, you know, obviously, Roland Garros, he cramps because, you know, he, he struggles with that occasion. Um, so that's still something that I'm looking for and I'm watching for. It's like, is he staying calm? Is he handling the big moments and the pressure points as well as, as he can be. Oh, and also focus um, is something that I think can get better. Uh, North American hardcore summer, there were a lot of moments where it did look like he got a little bit bored, got a little bit careless, made some mistakes, stuff got close. You know, he played all three setters all summer. Uh, wasn't beating anybody in straights because he did have moments in matches where he dipped. And, uh, and lastly, I think with the forehand, Sometimes I feel like it's the best forehand in the world. Sometimes it's a little erratic. Can he get that a little more consistent? I'm, I'm curious to see if he can make it a, a forehand where we don't have to think about if, if it's the best or if it's not the best. Right now, I'm kind of on the fence. I don't know. Sometimes it, it leaks errors. It sprays a little bit too much for me to kind of give that kind of title as Oh, yeah, best forehand in the world, it's Alcaraz. Not quite there yet. Can he get it there? I'm curious to see that as well. Yeah, those are great points. I, I agree with everything. Like, I think he's, he has a lot of potential to improve, and it seems like they're doing the work and they're analyzing, like, similarly what you, to you laid out here, like, what are the key improvements? And I, I don't think they will overlook the serve because that's clearly, also from a technical point of view, you see that it's, it looks like a different person serving. It looks like someone is serving, and then he plays the rally. It's like it, it switched something out, you know, yeah. in the middle of the point. And it's like that looks a bit strange to me uh, because the, the, obviously the physical and the natural talent he has uh, should be able. But then the serve is also that's like the golf swing of tennis. Like that's a static shot except for you throwing up the ball. And people think, oh, that should be the easiest. But it's also the most biomechanically complicated shot. So you get a serve and then to, to try to improve it. Uh, you've seen like Novak did it. It took him quite a while to get the serve as good as it is now, uh, and that would be yeah, that would be devastating for a lot of players if he gets better at the serve and more consistent uh, on the forehand for sure. I think that's that's uh, that would be something for sure. 
Uh, what do you think about Novak? Do, do you think three three more slams for one year, or or do you see that the train is is slowly slowly s slowing down? Not a lot of signs that it's slowing down. I mean, eventually it will. I think Alcaraz is a big X factor. You know, they're gonna play some big matches in slams, if I were to guess, next year. And uh, who comes through those matches is is gonna be a big deal. And you know, you kind of know what level Novak is gonna bring to it. Uh, the question is, like, can Alcaraz make another leap? Can Alcaraz leap to to a point where, I don't know, he, he separates himself from Novak? Like, is that possible? Can he make those improvements uh, that would be necessary for him to do that? Uh, that that's going to really factor in. Um, but, yeah, you know, other than that, I think Novak comes into 2024 uh, very motivated, especially because of the Olympics. And, you know, that is something he, he values a lot. He's underperformed by his standards in the Olympics. And, you know, I, I expect that that gives him, as it did in 2021, it gives him a little bit of an extra zeal. You know, physically, Novak has been so good. A little bit of injury issues at times this year, but, you know, he's always been able to work through them. Physically, he looks so good, so preserved, I'll say, at his age. That, you know, one of the main things that I kind of like to read for him is where is his motivation at? And uh, I don't think in 2024 it's going to be much of a problem with the Olympics. 2025, oh, and by the way, Alcaraz, I think he's going to be very excited at the prospect of, of competing with him. You know, 20, but if he wins a couple more, we start to go into 2025, 2026. Um, I do think we might start to see, we might, we might get to a point where, uh, Novak is going to maybe have some questions about how how much is the fire burning for him to continue to again dedicate himself as much as we know he dedicates there might I'm all I'm saying is that's not infinite right there might be a limit to that and it might be for the for 98% of tennis players what ends your career is your body says I'm out for Novak it might not be for Novak, it might be the, the mind, the motivation. It might say, okay, I'm done now. Um, and that's something I think to look for down the road. But next year, I don't see any signs of it slowing down. You know, you go into next year and, and you look at, uh, I mean, I still think especially, especially off of hard court, maybe it's a little bit more complicated on hard court, but off of hard court, you know, Djokovic and Alcaraz as the two guys who are going to compete for the biggest titles in all likelihood. Yeah, I, I agree to that. And uh, it, yeah, he looks super fresh. I, I actually talked to his uh, assistant coach, who's a friend of mine, the other day, and I asked him like, "What do you think? What, what's your feeling?" Because he's he's there all the time, Carlos, and uh, and he's like, "Yeah, he's still hungry, but it's like it, it's uh, it's clear, I think that it's it's more about it's a hundred percent about the slams and and the Olympics. It's it's the the Masters. I think that's that's kind of sailed a little bit, like the the motivation to win Masters titles. That's that's just preparation but then winning the slams winning olympics and i think that he's still as pretty much as dedicated as ever but then like how long you know if he gets can he get to you know 26 27 like then what happens you know at some point like you said motivation will start fading a bit you know and, and maybe yeah. maybe he just keeps winning until rafa retires and then he feels like okay yeah who's gonna catch me now like i mean there's no no chance, you know. Uh, what do you think about Rafa? Like, is he, uh, I mean, it's hard to know, but he's, he looks like he's training, but it's been a while since he's played some tennis matches. Yeah, look, I'll just be happy if he's 
feeling good and healthy and competing and, and gets a good curtain call at this point. It, it's hard to expect all that much from him, just given how, how we've seen. I mean, frankly, you know, we've just seen the movement um, deteriorate quite a bit, uh, especially towards the tail end of, of 2022. Obviously, first half of 2022 was amazing, incredible, so successful. Uh, but but then, you know, started with the ab injury, but then after the ab injury, it just it looked like the lateral movement was was pretty strained. And, uh, you know, he probably gets to a point where, you know, I still think he can play good tennis, but if if his movement is uh, is 70 percent of what it needs to be then, you know, it's just, it's hard to see him competing for the biggest titles the way he used to. Um, but I don't even think that that is, is top of mind for him. I think he just wants to be healthy and maybe go out on his own terms. And look, not everybody gets that. Like Roger didn't really get that. Uh, it's hard because again, usually, usually it's the body that tells you when to retire. It's not like, all right, I'm good. I'm done now. Like that's not how most retirements go in, in tennis. So Hopefully, um, yeah, I've seen the training videos. Good to see. Hopefully he just with, withstands the rigors physically of, of the 2024 season. And if he does, what I guarantee you is it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to bring magical moments, and it, it's going to be great for, great for the sport and great for Rafa fans as well. I agree. And we, yeah, we hope he gets, like, if it's a farewell tour of some kind of farewell year at least that he can play some healthy tournaments so he has like a little bit of a of a better farewell than than roger was a little bit uh, stunted in a way but but nice with the with the hand holding in the end you know and stuff like that so so that was still good Uh, american tennis like the last question i have here um is what do you think shelton who who is going to come out of this group of like you have a really strong uh crop of players right now like it's tommy paul it's shelton it's uh, taylor fritz tiafo you know, and Corda, for example, who do you think will, will make the biggest strides and have the biggest impact on American tennis in uh, next year? Shelton and Corda, I think, have the most potential uh, to be top five players in, in the future. Uh, Fritz did sniff the, the top five for a bit. Um, but if I'm going to say, you know, who's going to win a major, I, I see it much more I, with, with Shelton and Corda and the amount of kind of improvement that's available to them. I simply see it much more than I would with a Tommy Paul or Francis Tiafo or Taylor Fritz who are, are further along in their development. So there's, there's not as much space for them uh, to grow. I, I think with Ben, there's an unbelievable amount of low-hanging fruit, untapped potential, uh, technically in terms of his decision-making, in terms of even on his serve, uh, hitting spots more to try to rein in that 140 miles per hour that he has, but the mixing of spins that he also has, unbelievable uh, movement for his frame, which is just this really strong, powerful frame. So I think Shelton is going to be top five, but I also think it's not going to happen as quickly as people think. Like, I, I think Shelton won't have his best years uh, and won't really arrive and, and meet his potential for another four or so years. Like, I actually think he's far off of that. Uh, Corda, further along, it's about staying healthy. He's got to improve that durability. That's been an issue. Doesn't have the most varied game, but he's got good volleys. He's got a good backhand slice, and he is a pure, easy power, smooth ball striker. Um, 
What concerns me with Corda is you know he's never going to be a guy who like defends super, super well. Can you, can you be a top five player? Certainly you can be a top 10 player, but you can be a top five player. You're going to be a player who wins majors if you're not someone who kind of brings that, that defensive aspect to the game. Tough. You know, not easy to do. I think for Corda to really meet that potential, he needs to kind of bring that, that big ground game that he has, marry it with an elite serve, and now I can see someone who's able to win majors, but I think that's what it's going to take. So Corda, I'm a little bit more 50-50. I think Shelton has the most potential out of all of them, uh, but I also think it's going to take time. Yeah, I think that's a good read. I think that's a good read. This was a great talk, man. We could probably talk for three more hours to two really yeah. strong tennis nerds. And you're welcome anytime you want to talk, but uh, yeah, it's getting late. And I don't want to take more than two hours <laughs> out of your time because it's funny with these podcasts. It's always like you start talking, you usually set like an hour and then you're like, it's never an hour. Like it's, it's they just yeah. get into tennis. You have more like, oh, yeah, we could talk about this to talk about this, talk about this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Hey, this has been, this has been awesome. Uh, and I'm, I look forward to, to having you on, on my show at some point as well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just fun to kind of have this, uh, this free-flowing kind of take-it-wherever-it-goes uh, chat with you. That was super fun, super fun. Like You're a very knowledgeable guy. Uh, where can people reach you? I guess your YouTube channel, Jill Gross, and uh, do you have any other social media that you extra want to push? On, on podcast platforms, it's Monday Match Analysis if you want to find me on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And uh, yeah, Twitter, you know, even though I tweet less, I, I still tweet at Gil underscore uh, Gross, Gil with two L's. Awesome, man. You have the best of day. It's early for you. It's late for me. And whenever <laughs> you want to jump on and talk tennis, I guess it's, it, we, we can get into some interesting topical discussions uh, starting next season because we have a new action on the tennis tour to look forward to. Absolutely. You have a good night, Jonas. Thanks. Thanks, man. Take care.